Live from the NyxCast Anthropological Institute, this week we are talking about Anglophiles. Hello everybody out there. This here is Fanthropological and it's the show where we talk fans, fandoms, and why fans like the things they like. <laughs> Suddenly I'm that guy from Lifestyles of the Rich and Famous. Robin Leach. Robin Leach, thank you very much. That mysterious voice belongs to one of my co-hosts, one of my best friends as well. G. It's true, it's me. <laughs> <laughs> Also joining us today on Phanthropological is T. Sorry, folks. I'll have to do a little bit of my Canadian accent today. I know it's it's not up to snuff, but you'll you'll just have to live with it. That's all right. It's a it's a neutral accent, you know. It's very uh, easy to understand across the board. Perhaps across the borders. Ooh. And also joining us today in Phanthropological tea, the drink. Oh, <laughs> you got me. <laughs> every time every time did you pour boiling water into that tea or just boiled water this is, uh, this is important apparently oh boy i'm not I'm not opening this can of <laughs> worms this can of marmite jar of marmite point, <laughs> point is did you add your sugar and milk before or after you poured the tea in oh boy uh after wrong <laughs> according to douglas adams yeah it's to be done before all right. Yeah. Well. 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 Fine. <laughs> fine then. Just fine then. All right. This week, uh, as as Z and G have elaborately led us up to, uh, we are talking about Anglophiles. Anglophiles being fans of in in general England, or more specifically England, but in general the UK. Uh, I had some interesting definitions. If you guys want to hear them. I would love to hear them. Okay. Sure. They're, they're not interesting so much as I took them from other things, but that's cool. Um, sounds like sounds like you're a liar. I t- <laughs> <laughs> um, Don't worry. The, the English know all about taking things from other places and using them. <laughs> cool, cool boy. Ooh, I was going to save that till later in the show. <laughs> a little preview, a little taste. Yeah. Um, again, not, we're not judge- we don't judge fandoms. Uh, first definition, which I thought was the most interesting mostly because it ties us back to last week's episode on steampunk. Mm-hmm. Anglophilia, like pornography, is one of those things that are hard to describe, but you know when you see them. Interesting. I figured that wasn't a very helpful definition, but I tied it back. So <laughs> I, I enjoy it. I enjoy yeah. it. It's good. Yeah. Uh, it's that, good was, that was from a, a pretty interesting article called Why America's Anglophiles Are Missing the Point of the Royal Wedding from uh, Time Magazine. Mm-hmm. Uh, Mm -hmm. the more useful one with a little bit of uh, trivia sprinkled in from Wikipedia. Sorry, Wikipedia. (laughs) An Anglophile is a person who admires England, its people, and its culture. The word Anglophile was first published in 1864 by Charles Dickens in All the Year Round when he described the Revue des Deux Mondes as an advanced and somewhat Anglophile publication. And though Anglophile in the strict sense refers to an affinity for the things, people, places, and cultures of England, it is sometimes used to refer to an affinity 
with the same attributes of the British Isles more generally, although sometimes people use the word Britophile. Mm-hmm. Um, and then I found a really good one from TV Tropes because that gives me gives you listeners a little bit of hint of where I was going with this week's episode, <laughs> uh, which is generally they love British accents, the British royal family, and they often focus on the Britain of an earlier time, usually Victorian Britain through to World War II or so. Downtown Abbey is pretty much perfect for them. Likewise, <laughs> Harry Potter and other fantasy fiction. And steampunk is highly popular among millennials. Walt Disney is said to have been an Anglophile, which possibly explains why so many Walt-era Disney films are set in Britain or an adapted mm-hmm. from uh, classic British literature. Before we get to the why, I should say, uh, I found a couple interesting things. Mm-hmm. Uh, mostly interesting to me. I don't know how relevant they are to Anglophiles. I found out that Know Your Meme, what? which I would usually use as my source of information for, you know, memes, yeah. uh-huh. has sections on subcultures, which mm-hmm. has a small but possibly growing article on Anglophiles. Mm-hmm. Okay. Uh, which reminded me of two particular aspects of England that I kind of brought up last week, but hey, here they are again. Um, I was led to a video for Professor Elemental's I'm British, (laughs) which you may remember from the Steampunk episode, and uh, also Mr. B, the Gentleman Rhymer's Tone Deaf Straight Out of Surrey, which is basically just take, take Straight Out of Compton, make it English, and uh, play it on a banjo lately. Totally <laughs> tone deaf, but you know. I just died from twee. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but uh, that, that's what I found that was, was interesting. I don't know if either of you came across anything <laughs> of that caliber. Well, didn't look at into, uh, into Know Your Meme, unfortunately. But I did find a website called Anglophiles United. Mm-hmm. It's this website that's got all sorts of Anglophile stuff on it. Some uh, news posts, blog posts. There's a list of uh, current contests for free trips to the UK, which I found kind of neat. And uh, there's also a list that the the site itself claims is the Internet's largest list of British pubs not in Britain. Focuses mostly on the States. There was one, uh, one mentioned that's in... Uh, Budapest in Hungary but uh, like I said it focuses mostly on the states and um, I think it'd be kind of fun to see if either of you can guess which state has the most British pubs according to this list Uh, let me think about this for a second is it New England okay we got New England somewhere New New England England is several states I know (laughs) Rhode Island let's go with Rhode Island Rhode Island uh Go with, uh, Oregon. Let's go with Oregon, because Portland is there. Yeah, <laughs> good guess. Right. Both good guesses. Both wrong. Is it Delaware? Nope. Is it New York? New York was second. Oh. oh. New Rock. Jersey? Nope. Old Jersey? You keep <laughs> guessing tiny states. Keep going west. West. California. California with 25. 25. 25 British pubs? Apparently, yeah. Per capita or like... Per the state. There's 25 British pubs 
this, California. This uh, the the webmaster's um, cr- uh, criteria for a British pub, along with you know being a British pub. Uh, they also included Irish pubs, on the condition that they serve some English food, and they also included Irish or Scottish or whatever pubs that uh, play soccer on the TV. So kind of a kind of a loose definition, but twenty five is the number that they have listed for California. I mean, New York. A... I've, I feel like I've been in almost that many in Ontario, but <laughs> uh, the criteria must be up to a certain standard. Yeah, yeah. Well, I, I don't know. I feel like in California, you you're going to run into like a lot of uh, a lot of Mexican places, a lot of South American places, not necessarily a lot of English places like you would in a. Uh, a loyalist heavy place like Ontario. It's a lot for where California is in relation to the UK. Yeah. But having the most of all the states? I believe that these are reported by visitors, so it might just be that uh, California is where most of the site's visitors come from. Interesting. Mm Mm-hmm. So, as soon as we chose this topic, I kind of figured that, you know, I'm I'm probably somewhat of an Anglophile. Like I, I I love you know, British stuff. Watching British shows. I think listening to British music is neither here nor there, really. But uh, British food and stuff like that. But the thing is, my parents are both from England, and I visited England many times. It's just every every time I'm there, I treat it like a magical wonderland, and the people there. Who are already there do not seem to think that it is such. <laughs> I enjoy the uh, the, di- the different yet sameness. You know, things are slightly unfamiliar. Yeah, it, it is difficult to get quote a coffee there, like just a straight a plain... up just a straight up cup of drip coffee. Mm-hmm. Is not a thing over there. It's all like lattes and americanos and uh, espressos and so on. Just little, just little things like that. Uh, what I find so interesting. But that being said, you know my love, my love for British culture, carefully fostered, and now now transferring a lot over to just Scotland after having spent some time there. <laughs> the last time I was over there, I gotta be, I gotta be different. My parents are from England, so I gotta change it to you know just Scotland in order to, <laughs> in order to be a little bit different. It never occurred to me, or seemed like something I'd want to want to do is be in a group with other people who also feel like that about England. <laughs> it seemed like a, like a very private secret thing for myself that I just kind of quietly enjoyed this stuff. And like, so I was interested to find that there are like some communities and, and, and blogs and forums and things like that dedicated to people who are not English talking about England. Yeah. As opposed to just like going there or talking to People from England, I'm sure, which I'm sure they do as well. Oh yeah. But I never thought of you know like canoodling with uh, with other people who aren't English who enjoy England. But that being said, they're the people who can most see things from your point of view if you're also an Anglophile. Yeah. If you talk, if you talk to another British person, they'll be like, whatever. <laughs> like I live here, I don't care. <laughs> yeah, I kind of feel like uh, at least. From what I saw of the forum at Anglophiles United, that that sense that it's sort of this 
this personal thing or this thing you know you just kind of keep to yourself does exist with like is a thing for some anglophiles because one of the things that i kept coming across as i was reading through the forums there on anglophiles united was this uh this sense that it was really hard to get people to reply to your posts okay yeah so i, I don't know if that's just a matter of the website you know maybe not being enticing enough for some people or or what what i find the most interesting about anglophiles and this is not supported necessarily by it's not unsupported by the research that i did but was that it's like admiring a culture in the way that you would admire a culture that's already passed but it's not dead yeah it's like oh man mm. well I'm, i was about to say the greeks but i mean ancient greeks yes uh, it'd or be like, like the looking, romans or yeah. something it's like looking at those things and being like, wow, wouldn't it be great if they, if we could see those people today? And in those cases, the answer is like, well, maybe from an anthropological sense, mm -hmm. but in general, no, because it was <laughs> much worse then. Uh, and similarly, people probably look at uh, England and they're like, oh, castles and Victorian England. And it's like, do you know what those time periods like? Also, in that case, it's like, those people are still in England. They don't have castles, but they're English. They live there. Yeah. It's, it's like being an able being able to visit an ancient civilization now, but there's Wi-Fi. <laughs> I mean, having been to England, does does the uh, Buckingham Palace have Wi-Fi? Uh, I was not in Buckingham Palace. What about the Tower of London? I was not in the Tower of London. Which touristy what? places did you go to? <laughs> The Hollywood House in Edinburgh. Mm. I, I don't think they wanted us to have our phones out at all. So <laughs> I'm, I'm not sure. You went to 221 Baker Street, though. Yes. Did they have Wi-Fi? Uh, I was too busy looking at 221 Baker Street. It's <laughs> not very. It's not very big. Oh, okay. <laughs> like a tiny museum. Yeah. There's, um, there's, <laughs> most any place you would be standing and looking at your phone, there was Wi-Fi. Yeah. Well, I mean, especially in, in London, I imagine, since, you know, London is the UK, am I right? Yep. It's the entire yeah. four regions. <laughs> yep. That was definitely something that I came across that a lot of, uh, at least on the, on the Reddits that I was looking at, a lot of the, the English people that they were asking, what do you guys think about uh, Anglophiles and Anglophilia? A lot of them seem to, to agree that not all Anglophiles, but many of them tend to or at least seem to have this idea that England is just London. It is, it is <laughs> the biggest city and capital. Yeah. A lot of the Englanders made the point, though, that London is kind of like an island unto itself and quite different from the rest. Yeah. Well, I mean, in, in, in media and TV and movies and things like that, it's, it's what you're going to see the most often. Oh, yeah. So that would shape people's views quite a lot. Yeah. Of, of what England is. Yeah. Um, Dipping back into the, the historical side of things. And I will say that I, I got all this from uh, Wikipedia. So bear with me. Uh, anyway. Okay. So what I found really interesting was that there seems to be this, this weird historical precedence for Anglophilia. Because in the uh, in the 18th century, 
People like Voltaire were Anglophiles. A lot of French people in the 18th, uh, 19th centuries admired England because they saw it as more of a meritocracy where people were able to, you know, like move on up and become aristocratic if they were able to. And the aristocrats were very good to the people below them and, and very upstanding, <laughs> true gentlemanly chaps and whatnot. And apparently the same idea was also present in Germany, where uh, some extreme German nationalists in the, I believe, the 18th century specifically, argued that Shakespeare was, he was German, and he just wrote in English, because reasons. Uh, okay. <laughs> but I mean, just find, finding out that there are all these historical, sort of, I don't I guess, precedents for uh, instances of Anglophilia, it's kind of fascinating to see that it's still a thing, and that I think it's, I think even today, it's still based in the England that inspired those other countries, well, those people from those other countries, to uh, to have that that Anglophile feeling, you know? Because I think today, especially in America, there's this sense that the English are upright gentlemen, and uh, and English ladies are very proper, and everybody's you know very polite, and high class, I suppose, uh, for lack well, of a better term. Well, it's interesting you describing the French and German view of England as being like people can be upwardly mobile and, uh, you know, if yeah. they like... Because uh, what you were describing was the American dream. <laughs> yeah. And from this side, we see English as, oh, what a rigid class system they have. And, and like, they're very uh, tiered and, and hierarchical yeah. and... Ooh, the mon they still have the monarchy and stuff like that. So it's it's interesting to hear the two different sides. No. I don't know. I don't know what France yeah. and Germany think of England now. Well, I don't know either. But but, uh, but that was uh, another thing that did come up about Americans, like modern day Americans, and why they're sort of or why they might be drawn to England and Anglophilia. That it's because of that rigid class system. That, you know, as much as Americans are supposed to be beyond that, you know, it's a class-free society in America, ideally. They see England and they see the monarchy and they see specifically you know, uh, stuff in Jane Austen books and adaptations where there's this social hierarchy. And uh, it's like, oh, hey, that could be kind of nice. People would, you know, have their place and like know where it is and stuff. <laughs> and I saw wow. one theory... I saw one theory <laughs> that linked the popularity of Jane Austen in the States with uh, the previous popularity of Southern culture. Because once, you know, um, as civil rights advanced in that and that sort of thing in the States um, and slavery became very unpopular, rightfully so, mm. um, it was no longer cool to admire the sort of class-based kind of aristocratic like uh society of the southern united states and so that like that energy or that taste for sophistication was transferred from the south of the united states to england hmm yeah interesting hmm. i'll be perfectly candid when i conducted my research uh, I was motivated highly by spite. 
it was it was a uh, it, it was kind of a case like with the grateful dead where i was yeah. thinking this is not a thing and uh <laughs> this by no means invalidates uh the things that you've said z i think it actually s- supports the things that you said uh from a different perspective mm. in that when i was doing my research the biggest key component i i saw anglophiles as falling into one of two camps mm-hmm. i saw the anglophiles who um are not a fandom in uh in our meaningful sense of the word okay mm-hmm. so like we obviously anyone who declares themselves a fan of a thing is a fan of a thing regardless of the reservations that they have about that thing yeah um so i saw that there's like that group of people who are like i'm a fan of england and you'd be like oh the monarchy and they're like no the, these tv shows it's like okay i saw them like that group of, of fans who are basically just fans of particular elements Maybe it's actually history with a focus in in um, English history. Maybe mm-hmm. it's like castles or knights or armor or fantasy yeah. or whatever. Not decidedly English, just happening to be English. Like, just like with... Uh, I found something that contradicts my theory, uh, which was an article about dubbing Doctor Who in South Korean. Or in Ooh. Korean in South Korea. Um, yeah. And there, my, my hypothesis is still that people aren't dubbing Doctor Who necessarily because, oh my goodness, English is the best thing in the world. We need to have all this English <laughs> culture. I think in that case, it's because, hey, Doctor Who is a fun, well-written, pick some descriptions of it, like whatever you want. Mm-hmm. And people around the world want those international kind of things. So that was that was the one group that I saw. The other group that I saw without getting too political because I didn't do the research and I really don't want to espouse anything that's that's like that, um, was I saw as just like, wow, this is the, something that's super familiar to me because I live in an, an ex-British colony and they yeah. speak English and they're white people. Yeah. And, it's, and it's not the element of whiteness. It's just like, wow, I really love this, con- this uh, country that is basically the same as my country with some minor differences and you can say oh but there's a monarchy and this and like canada is a monarch like a constitutional monarchy or whatever you want to call it it's like yes and it's still very easy to self-identify with those people because they're they're pretty similar to us that was the thing that i saw more than anything when i dug to try to figure out the why of this fandom that second group had things that were not super meaningful in terms of a fandom it's like um this one quote from an article uh from the american anglophile entitled why anglophilia they listed four reasons why they are an anglophile mm-hmm. language uh, great britain constitutes the only set of people in the old world whose everyday language is intelligible to the majority of americans the colonial legacy there's still an echo of english rule in north america like the child who rebels against his father but ultimately decides to go into the family business. Yeah. Uh, Jane Austen, which they added absolutely no context to. <laughs> I felt it was evident. Um, yeah. Oh, I forgot to underline something. That was probably the colonial legacy was one of those things. Um, and Old England, knights and ladies, castles and kings, ancient lineages and family crests. We just don't have that here. Notice that like... Mm language is not really like oh wow i love this thing because it's pretty much the same as this other thing that's not like a huge glowing endorsement of something 
then you've got Jane Austen and, and uh, Old England and colonialism, which are like, I don't know, those are kind of things. I feel like the language is mostly about the the sound of it. I mean, I, re I remember in uh, university, I was taking a class in, I think it was just uh, general British history, covering all all three, well, four for at least a little bit, countries of the uh, former UK, or I guess still, still United, still UK, uh, Ireland, Wales, and Scotland, and of course, England. Um, and, uh, one of the, one of the students in that class had some, uh, some English, I'm pretty sure they had some English relatives, maybe Welsh, but whatever the case, they were in Wales and they, they mentioned how in Wales, um, I guess speaking Welsh, so maybe that, that discounts this. Um, they had a very sing-songy tone to it. And I feel like that's kind of what people get out of English accents. There's like this, this different musicality to it that people like because kind of going back to what G had said at the, near the top of the show, uh, it's familiar because you can understand the words, but it's different because it's more musical or like I pronounce my E's like E, you pronounce them like E. Well, kind and that thing. was and that was the thing. I I started to go down the track of I think people are fans of, I think people are Anglophiles by virtue of like the Y is just this is us but slightly different. It sounds different mm -hmm. because I don't imagine you would find Canadophiles already Googled. Oh, Maybe. cool. And that's why I tried to steer my research in terms of what non-European countries. <laughs> what non-English-speaking countries have Anglophiles? In when I was uh, going through Reddit, actually, I found anecdotal evidence of another, along with uh, South Korea, another non-English, well, non, uh, non-white country that might have some some Anglophilia, some uh, some Anglophiles in it. Um, it was on Reddit under the thread. What are your thoughts? on Anglophiles and Anglophilia. I believe it was in the UK Reddit. And uh, the user of Battle Biscuits replied saying that they are an ESL teacher in China and that uh, they recently had a, a new assistant come on board. And she's, as far as I could tell, she's uh, a native. She's a Chinese woman. And uh, she was telling this, uh, this person, Battle Biscuits, how in China, at least among this woman's friends, the the women there see England as iconic for its fashion and for its literature. So there's there's still some admiration there. Are they Anglophiles because of that? Maybe. But I don't think they're the same sort of Anglophiles who would watch Doctor Who and be like, Oh, David Tennant so dreamy. That I mean you don't have to be an, you don't have to be an Anglophile to find David Tennant dreamy. <laughs> He's a handsome True. man true but like I, I i also found that blog that you were uh, reading from t american oh. anglophile and and the the word that jumped out to me was access because americans access to english culture hmm. you know separated by a common language they like to say but like that's a little piece of europe that american really like dig down on we have all all the you know english literature Mm -hmm. and history and you know like current culture shows and things like that that are, that are coming over that 
that people can experience and enjoy without having to like go via translation or like another party to find, you know, to, to connect with the ideas that people have over there. Mm -hmm. And so it's that similar, but different kind of thing. And, and being able to inst not instantly, some people have daunting accents, but being able to understand without too much, uh, cajoling, uh, what people are saying in and about that culture. Also, do not overlook the the old kingdom. For 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 some people, it could just say England. It used to be like Game of Thrones. <laughs> Game of Thrones, not written by an English person. Nope. No. Like I mean, actually worth noting. Oh yeah, but very much based on England. Yes. Yeah. Medieval England. Yeah. And featuring a majority British actors. Oh yeah. Well, I mean, when people think medieval, they think English accents. You betcha. <laughs> Nobody expects the Spanish Inquisition. <laughs> or the French. Ooh. Or the French didn't, Inquisition. Didn't see that coming. <sighs> <laughs> Yeah, so I'm, I'm not sure where your various journeys ended up, but mine was a popsicle card stand of trying to support my hypothesis yeah. that uh, Anglophilia is not actually a fandom. Um, although a lot of the support, again, came down to the, the, the commonalities. One of the quotes that I have from a site called Anglotopia in an article, Lost in the Pond, Why Are There So Many American Anglophiles? Which, again, focusing mm -hmm. on Americans. Yeah. Uh, Two imperial forces came together largely because of the unfolding of history and the mutual benefits of a post-war world. Americans, still searching for some sort of palpable identity, continue to look up to Britain, though won't always admit it, as one would an older sibling, one who is perceived as wise, experienced, and more eloquent, but whose otherwise many flaws are all too often overlooked. That was a common theme that I, I saw as well, the, the idealization yeah. of Britain. Oh, yes. We just want the good stuff, please. Like, there, <laughs> and there's, there's plenty of, of bad stuff. I mean, by no means do I want to diminish anything else that's happened, but the things that come to mind are um, Brexit, mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Um, which is like a, a huge event primarily fueled by the, the backlash of globalization and, and um, as a result of that, people immigrating across, well, in Europe, everywhere, because yeah. this has the EU. Um, yeah. But also things like the, the Scottish referendum for independence, mm -hmm. which is not technically England, but it's part of the UK, and often people are not really talking about England as England, they're talking about the UK. Yeah. Um, yeah, a lot of people say England when they mean Britain. <laughs> yes. And then there's the British Isles. There's a lot of distinctions. <laughs> yeah. um, also, other bad things to happen. Um, this wasn't recent, but the riots in London around the Olympics. Was that, am I thinking of the right event? Yes. Yeah. And also, obviously, like uh, a culture that was very class-based and subtly continues to be very class-based not dissimilarly from america or canada just you know mm -hmm. a bit more present given the long historical nature of the country yeah 
Uh, actually, uh, going back a couple episodes ago now, uh, to a little thing called Harry Potter, oh. we talked about, you know, the 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 source work growing up with his fans. Mm-hmm. There's no way a bunch of them didn't also become Anglophiles from that. Because for a lot of them, because a lot of people read this when they were kids, a lot of people. Yep. That'd be the first exposure to British culture. Yeah. You know, and just the little little difference in Happy Christmas. <laughs> you know, people be like, "Oh, that's really neat," and that's not. Yeah. It's not, and finding out it's not just a Harry Potter thing. That's the way it is over there. Yeah. They're like, oh man. Cool. Yeah, there's yes, that novelty. Yeah. I was going to say some people might become Anglophiles and not even know it. Like Z as a literature. Well, both of you, I guess, as huge people knowledgeable on literature and more importantly, who know that there's a thing called the canon of literature, which is means nothing to me. I'm it sure no, it's, it means nothing anyway, but okay. some people like to pretend it does. But I'm sure as a result of that existing, it's, it's obviously rife with a lot of um, English literature. Which then, you know, since that's what you study, you continue to study that, you pass that on to your kids, and then they are introduced to that, and uh, that, that trend kind of continues. Like, I wouldn't be surprised if, um, well, I mean, there's Peter, Peter Pan, which is obviously a property that's endured long over time. There's Charles Dixon's, which maybe is not as popular. Sherlock Holmes. Sherlock Holmes is, oh, a, is a good one to reference. Uh, James Bond. Yep. Yeah. Like, numerous hugely english things that i'm not saying they they don't persist because they're good but also persist because you know english literature is uh because because of the like anglo-centric view of the world that we have Mm -hmm. and that helps to just you know help people to be more anglophiles and you know harry potter doesn't hurt either (laughs) no I I i think it'll be a while before the suzanne collins of the world change that yeah. Harry Potter's still still the king, uh, yeah. as it stands right now. But you know, England, England, and Britain were the big dogs for a long time before yeah. ceding to America. <laughs> so there's a lot there's a lot built in there. Yeah, it's, I mean, yeah. I mean, you can't step in English class without stepping in some 19th century British literature. <laughs> oh yeah, it's impossible. At least, uh, yeah. At least a, a Victorian poet or two, or maybe uh, maybe a little Frankenstein. Yeah, yeah, yeah. What I find interesting, though, and like really interesting in all of this, is just the idea that Anglophilia could just be some weird soft power holdover from the Empire. It's like, definitely a huge factor. It's, it's just like, but it's like crossing time. Not just uh, not just like in the case of Japan, for example, where they in the '90s they really uh, leveraged anime and video games and that kind of thing to promote their soft power, their cultural power. Um, but like with this, with, with England, the British Empire hasn't been around for how long? At least a hundred years. I guess post World War II, so more like sixty or seventy. I mean, they still have colonies that are not themselves. That's true. You could consider it being, but like the the quote glory days, yeah, were like were like the Victorian era. Oh yeah, for sure. 
Like, I, I think that a lot of Anglophilia is a result of that. One of the quotes from Confessions of an Anglophile um, was, much is made of the special relationship between the United States and Britain, and deservedly mm-hmm. so. There is no other country in the world with which we are as close to socially, politically, militarily, and historically as as Britain. What about I met... Canada? So I did, I did look into that. I tried to find something on that. Um, and I was, I was actually brought to a couple old news articles um, about Stephen Harper. So from this article, The Mystery of Stephen Harper's Anglophilia, which is a short read and you, if you want to get a little bit of, of a glimpse, it's worth looking into, but doesn't really get to the why again, not that much. But uh, in that article, the, the author says, there may be actual nostalgia too, but less for Britannia than for an earlier Canada that seemed to belong to white guys, leaving aside those folks in Quebec and the native ones in those days. The application of royal to institutions left and right may seem comical, but one would be ill-advised to minimize the extent to which the British sovereign is a deeply meaningful symbol of whiteness, hierarchy, and authoritarian rule. Even there, it's like, this is where, like, this discussion of Anglophilia is crossing right now very rapidly into very interesting territory that I am not equipped to deal with. But, like, I couldn't find a lot on Canadian Anglophilia either. And I oh. imagine... Oh. When I, when I said, what about Canada? Because you're oh, reading, well, I... the U.S. has never been closer or more similar to another society and culture. I'm like, <laughs> oh, <"What about> Canada. <laughs> but that's, that's probably the, the thing. Like, they... It's just, we were not as impactful in the history of the U.S. as Britain was. Arguably, we were Britain. Yes. So. Yeah, for a lot of the, the sort of revolutionary uh, Civil War kind of era, we were definitely still Britain. Yeah, and even now, like, yes, you can say that we are, like, the U.S. is Canada's most important trading partner, but it is probably not America's most important trading partner. Absolutely not. No. And when we think about why there are probably less Canadian Anglophiles, potentially because of a more international population or because the nature of our country is one that is more British and French and British. Yes. Because that's what I wanted to know. I was like, where are the non-American Anglophiles? Where are they? England. (laughs) (laughs) They made it, guys. (laughs) <laughs> what they moved they relocated they're living the dream everyone else around the world who loves England is already there yeah. <laughs> waiting for America yeah. boy oh boy um, one thread that I was trying to investigate is that maybe introverted people might identify with with british culture a little bit british culture is famously reserved yeah and uh private yeah so searching that i have someone here on the the student room forums studentroom.co.uk forums okay uh and a poster named pax americana says Hi, the student room. I'm an American who is likely going to be studying in the UK next year, and I've heard that British people are generally very reserved and that casual friendships and relationships at all don't happen like they do here in America. I've always been a a bit of an introvert, so I just wanted to hear from others what their impressions of the UK are. And the first reply is, 
No person in the UK ever goes or has ever been outside. <laughs> uh, so there you have it. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> is that is that some characteristic British wit, or uh, just a troll coming out of the well? Work? British wit is, of course, the greatest wit of all. <laughs> no, nothing funnier yeah. than British wit. That dry, deprecating sort of humor. <laughs> and because we're because uh, Canada is so close to Britain culturally and, and whatnot, um, I kind of wonder if that is. And of course, I am I am biased. A lot of the people I hang around with are uh, are probably and myself included are at least a little bit of uh, Japanophiles. But I wonder if that's why there are more people who say admire Japan here in Canada or who say admire, I don't know, Germany or uh, the Middle East, you know? If it's sort of like, a, oh, Britain, that's that's too familiar. <laughs> we've, go... we've, we've kind of done that yeah. already, you know? Yeah. Castles are nice, but uh, I don't know. These other, these other countries have more interesting stuff going on. Well, to briefly go abroad, like, I find it interesting that we don't call ourselves America Files, Americana Files. <laughs> and I think that's because somehow the, similar, the cultural similarities are too similar. So people don't identify a lot of those traits as being of America. Yeah, well, also because so much of our culture is just imported from America. Mm-hmm. Like, when you go see a movie, it's not necessarily the great Canadian whatever movie. It's it's probably... unlikely to be, as a matter of fact. Yeah. I mean, the strange little thing going on in the background is that a lot of it may have been produced in Canada. That's yeah. true. May have been yeah. filmed in Toronto or Vancouver with Canadian actors. Yep. But they're well, still fun, fundamentally American productions. But that's different from Anglophiles. Because I yes. don't think you will find very many people that will... It, it's that just the right amount of othering. Mm-hmm. That makes it dangerous interesting amount. to people. Yeah. 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 I tried to do some research into like the fetishization of different cultures, which is why I ended up on that TV Tropes page, which talked a lot about a, a lot of other interesting admirations for different cultures that gets reduced down to like simple concepts, right? Like English, mm-hmm. uh, fancy accents, um, smart, uh, fancy, 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 fancy. <laughs> like that, that is the reductionist idea of, of England castles, etc. Yeah. Castles, cottages, London. Um, so I was trying to figure out, you know, along the same lines, like with the accent, like we're transfixed by the English accent. And I was trying to figure out if I could find some kind of, I don't know, things that happen with the brain or something like that, that that may go to explain it. And I didn't quite find that. I was going to ask which accent. (laughs) Probably, probably an aristocratic or upper class British accent. BBC English, as they call it. What is that? Like the received English? Yeah, the received pronunciation. Yeah, Yeah. that one. Well, look for a spot of good weather here. And I think it's going to be a smashing uh, outing, you know, that sort of thing. Um. So let's see. This is this is from separated by a common language. 
www.blogspot.ca. Yeah. The article is Accent Attitudes. It shows a little study. Uh, and it says, the main, the main significant effect found in this study was that people who'd lived at least three months outside the U.S. rated the English accent significantly lower than people who'd only lived in the U.S. In fact, Americans who had not lived abroad considered the English-accented person to be much more intelligent than themselves. And the people who have lived abroad rated the standard American accent more intelligent than the standard English one. My preferred way of interpreting this, a bit tongue-in-cheek, is that Americans are happy to rate the English as more intelligent than themselves up until they actually start meeting and talking to the English. <laughs> so i think i think going back to what we were saying earlier it is like a signifier of otherness yeah and then as soon as it stops being other it's just like oh yeah yeah there's that realization that even it's though just, there's this veneer of otherness they're kind of the same it's just another person yeah um there's so much cultural weirdness in this album. <laughs> like, I'm just, my brain is spinning. It's just like, oh, we're going to other an entire other culture. But it's okay because the British colonized other people. It's like, well, it's not okay for that <laughs> reason. <laughs> but that makes it slightly less weird because it's yeah. like the the colonizer is the thing being fetishized. And I'm like, this is really, this is crazy weird, guys. It's really loopy. <laughs> it's throwing me so all over. So does that mean that Anglophilia is contingent on not having too much contact with actual Britain? Can you be an Anglophile if you are a non-English person living in the UK? Does that suddenly remove... I mean, you can... You can does that make you like a patriot? Yeah, like what is... Like, you know, if, if you know, you're still kind of... The, the accents are kind of cool and you get to see like like the rolling green hills and the little towns and you you know you can get iron brew or something <laughs> like that but if you don't like the way the buses are set up are you still an anglophile like what is what is it contingent on then mm-hmm. yeah i mean to be fair that's that is always the line right like i like this thing well what do you mean about that thing yeah it, it's like, I like Sailor Moon, but I didn't like these things about Sailor Moon. Do you still like Sailor Moon? The answer is yes. Yeah. Yeah. Perhaps that's just a, a way to root out the uh, the Anglophiles who are Anglophiles until they meet British people. And I suppose the true Anglophiles who are just fans of, of British culture and will stick with it through and through. Is this the second time that I get to bring out fake blank, like fake Anglophiles, fake geek girls? Yeah. Is that where we're going? So if you're a true Anglophile, you'll give us a five-star rating on iTunes. Yeah. And let us know in a 2,000-word essay why you are a true Anglophile. I don't know what the character limit is for views on iTunes. Thank you. I had this really neat quote from uh, somebody, but it was a... entitled from an article entitled an open letter to fangirls on anglophilia it basically highlighted the weirdness of of all of this um so i'll I'll read an excerpt from it. it's not very long but i didn't want to just quote the whole thing for verbatim um so the the person wrote uh, at one point in their their letter maybe it's because i've had to deal with the whole fetish thing as a chinese american woman but i can't help but feel for our friends from across the pond 
It's like a European version of those movies where the white people go to Asia and discover themselves thanks to a bunch of well-meaning, quirky native folk. That's, <laughs> that's the thing of fetishizing that is gross to me, and it doesn't matter what the object of the fetish. It's not an accurate or true picture of a place, and it's not even necessarily an outdated view of a place, but more of what place can fulfill in a person that they feel is lacking in their own lives. I've seen way too many essays on why BBC television is better than American television, which somehow ignores the fact that there's lots of brilliant American television, like Game of Thrones, Breaking Bad, and The Walking Dead. Let's not forget that Coupling was basically a spin on Friends, people. Moffat didn't write the sexy Friends comedy first. Nothing is original. We all riff and borrow ideas from each other. Moffat is not the alpha and omega of writing. Dear Lord, I hope not. <laughs> I have yet to hear a British rapper outside of MIA who can throw down with our rap artists here. But that was a really interesting quote that I that was yeah. there. It was a good article, but it was just like it kind of highlighted the weirdness that we've seen about like what is Anglophilia. Mm-hmm. Just like there's a lot of people that um, idealize the notion of England, and yeah. that creates then, that's problematic. Yeah, and then they can if they be an English person, they can put all that stuff onto them. Yeah. 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 Actually, um, oh man. Oh, <clears throat> actually, gee, that reminds me of uh, something that I I dug up that's not related to England at all, but is related to Anglophilia. It, it is this phenomenon known as Paris syndrome. Oh yeah. Yeah. So for I don't know if, if either of you know about it. it sounds like it sounds like he does. But uh, if you're wondering what Paris syndrome is, it is basically a physical reaction that people get when they go to Paris and the realities of Paris are so different from what their expectations were that it makes them sick. Whoa. Symptoms, symptoms sometimes include vomiting, dizziness, uh, racing heart, hallucinations. So it's like this bizarre thing that happens where the reality in somebody's head doesn't match up with the reality as they see it. And that just like fires something off in the brain that sends all sorts of crazy signals throughout the body and makes a person sick. Wow. Yeah. Apparently that's so bad that the Japanese embassy has like a whole thing about Paris syndrome when Japanese people visit. Yeah. For some reason it, it seems to affect Japanese people a lot more according to the article that I, I was reading, so... Perhaps it's because of the the larger difference between cultures than... Like, Maybe. We're, Maybe. we're English, I but mean, we're more European than Japan is European. Yes. Yeah. Well, I mean, I mean when I was in South Korea teaching there, um, a lot of the bakeries, a lot of the little, like, pastry shops and stuff were Paris-themed. There was even a, a chain of bakeries called Paris Baguette. Mm. Um and like it was very much an idealized sort of mid, well, yeah, mid-ish twentieth-century uh, depiction of France and of Paris, where you know, people are riding around on bikes and they've got the scarves, looking very, very uh, chic, the berets mm. and the baguettes. There are not many cities in the world who are more romanticized than Paris. Mm-hmm. London. <laughs> uh, I said that's why I said not many. Yeah. yeah. I mean, also, also, also literally romanticized. I was about to go there, yeah. <laughs> Ooh.
So for my research this week, I spent a lot of time going through the forums at uh, Anglophiles United, and I came across a few posts about how people got into England, but uh, I found one uh, particularly neat, and it actually kind of speaks to the whole uh, question, are there basically non-white, non-English-speaking countries that have Anglophiles? This this uh, post suggests there is. So this post comes from Christina, and she writes, Zella, the name of the, uh, the webmaster of Anglophiles United, Zella, many thanks for this website. I love it. I discovered I was an Anglophile at the age of 12. Spando Ballet are to blame. I remember myself being really bad at English at 10, 11, but then I became a Spandau Ballet fan, learned all of their lyrics by heart. I loved it so much that I started learning dictionaries by heart, and in the end, I got my degree to work as an English teacher in Spain. Not happy with that, I started my English philology studies at university, which I absolutely loved. Unfortunately, my parents weren't too keen on their daughter traveling abroad, and due to circumstances, I've just visited England once in my life. Hopefully I will do a massive tour over the UK someday. Now my daughters are very young, but in a few years' time I must fulfill my dream. I remember the day I entered Westminster Abbey and put my feet on the graves of all those magnificent writers I used to read. That was an amazing experience to me. I remember myself touching the stone banisters of the Tower Bridge and thinking, when would I be able to come back? I still keep some dried flowers of that amazing country. I've always devoured any book related to the UK, I find it amazing from the Hadrian's Wall to the houses that used to exist there on the London Bridge, the origins of Cleopatra's Needle, as well as the development of Soho. I love learning about the etymology of the British place names, the runes about the Gaelic language, and even the Cockney slang. Accents all over the UK are amazing to me. Have you noticed how close the vowels are up north, and how they become more open down south? The monarchy timeline, the connections with Spain, did you know the elephant and castle in London? seems to be the derivation of Infanta de Castilla, Princess of Castile, LOL. Well, Britain is so rich that it gives way to all kinds of dreams and literature. Congrats for this. Honest. Love this work you're doing. That was a really interesting story because I, I don't think I'd ever considered somebody... I, I didn't think that we'd actually find any non... I, it's still European, but I would not have found mm -hmm. thought that we would find Anglophiles that are non-American or non-Australian or New Zealand, American, mostly American. So mm -hmm. cool. Thanks for finding that, Z. Yeah. You're welcome. Just a little service I sometimes do around here. <laughs> for free, no less. Oh, oh no, jeez. Oh. Oh. You get what you pay for. Oh, <laughs> <laughs> oh boy. All right, so I, I have something that I want to shine the spotlight on this week. Mostly because by the time this episode is released, it might actually be a thing. All right. Um, we've been talking a little bit on the podcast, or outside of the podcast, I should say, about the importance of connecting with local communities. And so that's exactly where this spotlight is going. Um I'm going to talk a little bit about the Watchtower restaurant, which has nothing to do with the Mormons, the, nothing to do with the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints, uh, has nothing to do with their publication. There is a restaurant that is opening up in Kitchener, Waterloo, which is the city in which I reside. Uh, 
and they are doing what I would argue is probably one of the first, if not the first in Canada at the very least, nerdy bars slash restaurants. It is, um, all right, it, it may not even be the first, but it's not super common across Canada. And uh, it was described to me as being like a sports bar except for geeks and nerds. Mm-hmm. And uh, the website is watchtowerrestaurant.com. Uh, by the time that this episode goes up, I hope that they should be open, but I know that right now they're still wrestling with some permits and um, and finishing up the floor plans and dealing with not having the size of kitchen that they originally planned on, <laughs> which is obviously going to change how things work. They yeah. ran a an Indiegogo campaign recently to try to raise some money to help with the decoration and whatnot of the restaurant. They managed to raise about... 1400 out of their $10,000 goal. They had some really neat tiers. Like you could uh, add items to the menu. You could become an insider and kind of like once a month uh, be part of their podcast or um, name a cocktail or things like that. Sounded really cool. Uh, didn't, uh, they, they, did, they had a flexible funding goal. So those things are still going to happen, just not to the same scope that they'd hoped. And uh, yeah, I want to shine my spotlight on that because I think that is a cool, geeky thing that is happening that we should have more of. There should be more spaces for geeks. I know, I know there are board games all over the place and there are escape rooms all over the place. <laughs> yeah. But uh, I just want to shine my spotlight on that. So check it out. They probably also have a Facebook and a Twitter and whatnot, but those are also on the website so you can check all those out. And little tiny little plug... And this is only because we put so much effort into all the different things that we do. You should check out our YouTube, youtube.com slash the next cast. Uh, because one, there's going to be some pretty cool stuff that maybe we'll have released by now. I don't know. But if not, there's tons of content that we've now posted from Forest City Comic Con and from Unplugged. And there's only going to be more of that stuff moving forward as we continue to go to more conventions and do more stuff, interview more people, and in general, advance the whole idea of getting to the why of fandom and meeting more fans well you guys are busy listening to these podcasts uh we're doing a lot of stuff when you're not looking (laughs) i mean we're doing basically all of the stuff when you're not looking (laughs) yeah i i guess so yeah point is yeah stay tuned to youtube.com slash the next cast yeah yeah and if uh, all of your time is taking up by watching liking subscribing and retweeting our videos you can make your way on down to iTunes and leave a rating or review for our podcast. The more ratings and reviews you get, the more people will see us, the more people will listen to us, the more people will 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 get on board with what we're doing. So uh, yeah. that would be lovely if you could do that. Cool. All right. Fanthropological, now in vanilla and lemon, but after this week, no longer limey. All right. Thanks, everybody, for listening. And you can find us online at fanthropological.com. If the website's not your bag, you can also check us out on various social media, Twitter, Instagram, Facebook, and YouTube, all at The Next Cast. Mm-hmm. And uh, if you'd like to email us, perhaps let us know fandoms you'd like to see us cover or the numerous things that we missed in an episode about a fandom that you belong to. Nick at thenextcast.com is a place to send all that stuff. You can also check us out on Podbean or the Podbean app. I suggest you do, and uh, until next time, remember, everyone's a fan.
goofy time? Yeah. Um, okay, I've got one. If you check out the... Okay. Go, okay. go, go. Okay. If you check out the nutritional... Inf- uh, if you check out the... If you check out the nutritional information for next week's episode, you'll find that it contains five stars worth of good content and zero <laughs> calories. What are we talking about? Stay tuned. Much like Coca-Cola, Phanthropological contains a shocking and horrifying <laughs> amount of sugar. <laughs> Next week on Phanthropological, red, white, and you? That's right. We're talking Coca-Cola characters. <laughs> we are off to a good start. Phanthropological, the podcast that never stops being fizzy. Phanthropological, the only podcast where the bubbles don't hurt your tongue. The deep cut. (laughs) Too deep. Might not be able to dig that one out. Uh, I mean, a more serious one would be um, Phanthropological, we like to talk about fandoms of all different types. That's why next week's episode is going to take you a little bit back in time. To a simpler time, a time the Pepperidge Farm remembers. Not quite. We're going to be talking about Coca-Cola fans. Oh. I mean, we already did the. I mean, I guess so. we we bow to no corporate sponsor. <laughs> <laughs> we already have like a laundry list of good ones from last time. <laughs> <laughs> That's true, actually. Yeah. I mean, those should Next definitely one. end up in our tweets. <laughs> Next week's episode of Phanthropological will will contain no calories as it has been sweetened by aspartame. What? (laughs) Boy. Something about studies showing that aspartame is totally healthy. That's fine. Next week's episode has been generously funded by the National Sugar Foundation. (laughs) (laughs) Next Next week's episode has the surgeon... General's approval, stamp of approval. Yeah. Dude, dude, we don't need to go overboard with this time. Yeah. I disagree. <laughs> oh, yeah? Okay. Never watered down. Next week on the podcast, two ice cubes. We're talking Coke. What happens when you take Mentos and mix it with next week's episode? Probably nothing. Yeah. We still invite you to try. (laughs) (laughs) At the very least, it'll make us all seem very fresh. (laughs) But if you're having a bad day, it'll suddenly make everything go perfect. (laughs) I'm just going to do Mentos commercials. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> oh, man. <clears throat> Phanthropological now in vanilla and lemon but after this week no longer limey <laughs> <laughs> nice <laughs> that one would be really appropriate actually <laughs> you are a curious young man 
Therefore, you deserve a nice cold vanilla. Anthropological. On next week's episode, in the uh, holiday season, just imagine a bunch of polar bears having a good time. There's nothing else, just that. Then imagine that we are those polar bears. Yeah. (laughs) I'm probably, yeah. Anthropological. Having a good time with penguins. Yeah. It's a good time. We don't have a Next. commercial budget, folks. <laughs> Next week on Fanthropological. Is it oil that pumps through America's veins? No. It's Coca-Cola. Downtown Abbey. That's that's where we're going this week. Yeah, we're going downtown. to the Abbey. Downtown. I don't actually know how that song goes. Downtown. Where the abbeys are brighter there. Downtown. I don't think there's anything bright about Downtown Abbey. Maybe the lights. Lights are kind of bright, you know. They're in the electrical age and, uh, and all of that. I think what we should do is is continue to describe Downton Abbey without any of us having seen it. <laughs> <laughs> it has famous actors in it. <laughs> is Colin Firth in it? Uh, Maggie Smith is in it. Okay, that's who I was thinking of, but I didn't know her name. It's set in a building that has some stairs. So they're always talking about the people who live upstairs and the people who who live downstairs. So uh... let's move on. Yeah, I was gonna get okay. there. Okay. <laughs> um...